um, I got rid of the £50 note. Oh, did you? Yeah. Did you I, buy some drugs? I bought some drugs straight off the streets. Yeah, that'll uh, do it. I have a corner man and he... Am That's I doing boxing. this well? I That's remember boxing. watching The Wire once. This is already sounding a lot like the pharmacy on Lapwing Lane, but on, on you go. <laughs> I, um, I, I, gave it to, I gave it to my, my barber, who was happy to accept oh. it. Make of that what you will. How and, much do you pay for a haircut? Um, I got a considerable amount of change, but he completely—he fell for what was essentially a ruse to just palm off said £50 note on somebody who I thought might might actually appreciate it or indeed use it or indeed spend it on something. But um, so, yeah, I'm uh, I'm very pleased. I feel lighter. Um, my head of hair is certainly lighter. Certainly, yeah. And I've and I've managed to to overcome an issue which which, as you can tell from the fact that I brought it up twice in two weeks, was very much dominating my thoughts. He got a haircut, Rory, and he got continuity for the podcast Look content that. that is i mean that is unbelievable <laughs> value you know, for money do you not find with hugh's hair that for someone who does his haircut so often so frequently it never looks any different that's why he does it so frequently but it must be really hard to tell like do you think they're actually cutting anything there's only yeah, yeah, like snipping around the top you, and pretending they're doing something you are essentially explaining the reason why what i do is a success yes. Hugh's haircut is effectively oh, the, the top of your head equivalent to design a stubble. Is it cheaper if you go to the barber and say, I want you to do very little? Yes, it would be. I imagine that it would be, well, no, it's essentially in the grand scheme of things, he does very little. But what he does is maintain the impression that I'm constantly television ready. You, um, speaking of television ready, you turned up on what I think we all agree now is the, the BBC's greatest output, which is a, is, a, is a Ross Atkins video. Oh, did I? I did yeah. not. Well, on one of the millions and millions of watch ones, or one, um, one that was watched by like eight people. I don't want to shock you, but I, I don't know if you've known this, but I've always been a massive F1 fan. I, uh, I just love the way they drive around the track, change Engines. their tyres. Sometimes they go fast, sometimes they go slow. No one ever overtakes. Just think it's a great sport. And I've always been a massive admirer of L Lewis Hamilton. No, um, it Sir, was in the... Sir, Sir Lewis. Lewis Hamilton, yeah. I think you, I think you the, pronounce it Louis. Louis, Sir Louis Hamilton. The No, so there's there was a, a one of those four-minute explainer videos that he does that are brilliant uh, about Verstappen and Hamilton. And you were on it. I shall seek that out. Ros Atkins actually um, spent some time with the sports news team and uh, because we were, given that he does a lot of his work on a touch screen, which uh, he was very much the um, inceptor of, mm. um, he, uh, he came up and gave us a few tips on how best to use the touch screen. And I did a piece uh, on the touch screen and he watched it and emailed me back saying that I did a very good job. So uh, perhaps he had a, um, a leaning towards me when including my rendition of a story that absolutely everybody would have done in the period he, between happening and him putting it on. He would have seen you delivering it on, on the news and thought, do you know what, that guy knows how to use, his, use a touchscreen. He knows his way around a giant iPad. This is, this is the man I want to quote. And most importantly, even though it was pre-haircut, that haircut isn't too long to be consistently televisual ready. That's true, and that's you know that's what you that's what you're paying your barber seven pound fifty to do. <laughs> that's forty two pound fifty change, please, sir. This is Set Piece Many, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, Daily Lateral Flow, and Stephen Wyeth, closing down the training ground. Uh, the food is this. I want to I want to um, show you this. Uh, I have had the great fortune of increasing my visits to Aldi uh, recently. Mm. 
for nappies. But uh, as you do, so, as, as everybody who visits Aldi will know, that uh, you, you just enjoy taking a wander around and seeing what there is. It is like, and, and this is uh, particularly relevant at this time, something of a wonderland. And um, so I went to the area to, to buy my wife some sweets, and I ended up finding this thing. And it is, without doubt, the number one chocolate bar anybody has ever produced for me to eat. It's called a Knoppers Nut Bar. And it's made I'd, by the I'd assume Stork. That, I'd assume that's a silent K. I don't want it to be. It is. It's definitely a silent K. If it's a Knoppers, it's okay. If it's a Knoppers, it's even better. So I recommend that anybody who lives near an Aldi seek out a Knoppers Nut Bar and give me some feedback. Um, the fibble is, you will be delighted to hear, uh, is relatively seasonal. We are using the excuse of having to provide two festive episodes to provide you with two retrospective episodes. So join us as we go down memory lane, as far as the memory of three approaching middle-aged gentlemen will allow, as we scratch Rory's itch for an annual sporting review show. We mm. can't do spotty here, because at least one of us thinks it a completely redundant concept, but we can do Smrotty. So, part one of the set-piece menu review of the year, Smrotty... <laughs> is to come you can get in touch with the podcast set menu at gmail.com is our email address many of you uh, have done just that to extend your best wishes to chinch and his family for which he and we thank you uh, he in return and in his continuing necessary absence sends you all seasonal greetings uh, chinch would actually particularly like this email from aaron lovegrove given how consistently he nails an american accent in his playing of jack reacher jack reach cliff and elizabeth bennett hello <laughs> chaps I write firstly in response to Stephen's reminder that the gladiator Jet worked at a local gym with the fascinating fact that Wolf, the famous villain from the same TV show, owned a gym on my local high street, which is in Hayes near Bromley, when I was growing up in the 90s. The name? Wolf's Gym. Uh, so particularly Solid. Yeah. Uh, uh, interesting uh, fact about Wolf, his brother worked for the Press Association, may still do, not sure, um, but famously Wolf's brother is a is a football journalist can you uh name them uh i mean is that, G- is that gdpr i don't know <laughs> being being related to wolf is not a state secret is it well, i don't know i mean maybe i mean maybe he doesn't want people like coming up to him in the street and challenging him with, with like a giant <laughs> cotton bud i don't know the well we know his, Van, Jim, his, Jim his surname is wolf oh is, oh is it really his name, his name is not wolf he's not called like <laughs> Jim Ian wolf, wolf. Do you think all the gladiators use their surnames? Yes, like footballers? That's how, that's how they got the job. How would they get the job otherwise? It was like Deborah Lightning. Well, there was a guy called Hunter. I mean, that seems fairly yeah, obvious. Could, yeah, Hunter could be called Hunter. That's true. But I think, I think like, Warrior, who was the best one, by the way, um, is unlikely. No, I'm particularly fond of Jeffrey Rhino. Um, <laughs> the bulk of Aaron's email, I should say, is the following. Uh, he says, I also attach a short, non-exhaustive list of the things that Americans cannot say properly. I am quite the Americophile, which I'm not entirely sure is the correct way of expressing that, but I like it anyway, and have been thinking about this for way too long. And he then proceeds to say that uh, the first version is correct and the second version is American. Here are Aaron's examples. Mirror. Mirror. Mm. Boy. Buoy. Mm. Triathlon triathlon i couldn't care less i could care less which makes no sense <laughs> nuclear nuclear arctic arctic craig craig vague see craig <laughs> regardless irregardless mm. which is a double negative it doesn't make any sense processes 
processes. Hugh, he says, has unfortunately picked this one up. If I have, Aaron, I, I wholeheartedly apologize. I had no idea. Caramel, Carmel, and Niche, Niche. Wishing you all a merry and non-isolated Christmas. Aaron from that London. Aaron, thank you. And any response from our US contingent is greatly appreciated. Although by Aaron, not necessarily encouraged, I would imagine. In the early seasons of 30 Rock, there is a musical, I think, or a film that the, the, the Jenna Maroney, Jane uh, Trotovsky's character, is in called The Rural Juror, which <laughs> I, I think is that. a joke on the fact that Americans can't, an American joke on the fact that Americans can't say either of those words properly. That is, it's The Rural Juror. Both of which sound a lot better in English. Unlike, the, to, to be fair, for balance, we should add on the list of words that British people can't say correctly, which extends no further than the US state of Connecticut, yes. which you cannot say in a British accent. Well, uh, I would like at, at least that to be as part of a list which anybody from that side no, of the pond can no, send. No, list ends. List ends. Connecticut, list ends. Uh, our remaining emails will take us back in time, one step at a time. Buffalo Adam Bremner writes regarding SPM 261, which is about the difference between watching at home or on telly. Dear Sean, Anton, Maxine and Alexander, Googled it, still not sure. Love the pod re-watching at home versus in person, as I've had a mix of both in the last two weeks, as my beloved NYCFC won the MLS Cup last weekend. I saw the Eastern Conference final in person in Philadelphia, and then watched the final, played in Portland, in two venues. The first half with three and a half thousand fans at the Hammerstein Music Hall, with big screen TV and full-blown AV system for commentary. The second half, for reasons too detailed for this email, in the back room of a bar with a regular-sized TV and random 80s and 90s music as the background sound, with no commentary. Four observations to share. Number one, nothing beats cheering your team in person when you win a playoff game, or a game that matters. Away from home, the silence from 19,000 fans as you score the winner, and the players running to your section to celebrate, dance and sing. You definitely don't get that on TV. Number two, watching with other fans in games that matter, and especially when going to penalties, is incredibly stress relieving. Somebody is always feeling worse than you. Not always true at home. The cat does not really care. Number three, sometimes the picture quality is crap, as it was for the game in Philadelphia, for those unlike me who watched it on the TV. And four, finally, crowd noise. Be it live, on TV, even fake, beats the crap out of Foreigner's Urgent and Rick Springfield's Jesse's Girl. Uh, that's it, except to say New York is blue and hashtag Bing Bong, Google that and James Sand says AB, although I Googled the first thing and I still didn't get that, so I'm not going to be Googling anything more. Adam. The MLS Top Final was a really good example of of why football is better than scripted drama. Because Portland's equaliser, which I, I personally think was offside, came in the 94th minute at home, and you had this massive explosion. They'd they, they kind of been pushing for it, but, but not, not really. Um, they were getting increasingly desperate, and they eventually kind of, the ball breaks, and there's a good finish. And they get, the whole place goes nuts, and you think, okay, this is now the, the momentum is with Portland, and then, and then in extra time, you kind of think, yeah, Portland looked better here. They, they've clearly their tails are up, and then they lose on penalties. And there was just there was something so kind of inherently bathotic about it that you wouldn't ever you wouldn't ever write it that way. That I think in certainly in Andy Das, my boss, is, is of the view that that like home ground finals are really important for MLS because they create atmosphere. I'm not 100% sure because I'm not sure it's entirely fair in a one-off game for it to be in one team's home ground and not the others. Um, I think integrity-wise, you want it on a neutral ground. But it did It did kind of... You, you are tempted to, to kind of support... When you're, when you're totally neutral, you, you generally support the home team because you, you get better scenes if they win. But there was something kind of inherently... I don't want to say funny, but yeah, like brutally 
undercutting about the fact that Portland had this amazing moment where they equalised and took the game to extra time and then just lost on penalties and lost quite easily on penalties, if we're all completely honest. Football being willfully contrarian is a uh, yes is, is a nice factor of it. Well, you think about like Bayern Munich against Chelsea in 2012 in that final at the Allianz and Bayern were vastly superior to them in every way and then they lose on penalties. That is just that's it's just there's something so pure about that. That is that is those games are like football. That is that is football in in a nutshell. The Bayern versus Didier Drogba final. Why <laughs> yeah, do MLS? Yeah, yeah. Why do MLS do that? It, I, I assume Portland earned home advantage through their regular season performances. Did they? Was it a seeding thing or? Not sure. Not sure. I th- I, I think that. Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, as as regular readers of my newsletter will know, I don't cover MLS. The it, not because I don't like it; just, it's really far away, so I don't. It, I've got other things to do. Um, it wasn't just it wasn't just a coincidence. Like no, 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 it wasn't. Super Bowl no. venue is chosen before you know who the Super yeah. Bowl finalists. No, 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 no. It, it was it wasn't a kind of twenty case of twenty twelve where it happened to be in the Alliance and then right. Bayern made the final. It it was I think selected in some way. I think the real reason they do it is because it's the easiest way to guarantee that you will sell the game out. Whereas if you put it in, does America so big? If you put that game in Lincoln, Nebraska, then you might struggle to get a decent crowd and a decent atmosphere. So I think they've done it that way. I'm not, as I say, I'm not convinced it is fair. Also in response to SPM 261, our Arsenal expert, Tim Stillman, wants to continue a theme that has, to the delight of Stephen and I, developed over recent pods where people reject a point that Rory makes. Uh, dear Rick, Vivian, Mike and Neil, that one's easy. I hope you understand mm-hmm. uh, the young ones. Uh, listening to SPM 261 on being at the game versus watching at home. And I had to disagree with Rory's assessment that away fans are the last to turn on an underperf- underperforming manager. Having been to every Arsenal game, home and away, over a long period of time during Arsene Wenger's reign, it was very much the away fans that turned first and in a much more vociferous way against the manager. This could, of course, have been unique to Arsenal fans, but I found the atmosphere at away games far more mutinous in Wenger's last six to seven years at the club, whereas home games were much more convivial. Some of this will be because Arsenal's home form is generally better than their away form, but mainly I think that the away fans turn first and in a much more emotional way because fans that go two away matches are far more likely to consume news around their club 24-7, which, when you are dissatisfied, builds anger. Away fans are, in my experience, much more online too. Whereas at the Emirates, quite a lot of the supporters don't really consume Arsenal at all, other than in the time that they are in the stadium. It's not a criticism of them. Away fans are also more cliquey because you generally see the same people, travel on the same modes of transport. It's far easier to build groupthink compared to the disparate way in which people come to home games. Like I say, this could have been unique to Arsenal, but I would imagine this is likely to be the way of things for top clubs who have a large home support. Large home support means having a lot of different dynamics at play in home games, whereas at away games, groups are much more tightly formed and disquiet around the managerial situation at the club is likely to be a more intense preoccupation than for a lot of home fans whose experience is less intense. Keep up the great work. That is from Tim Stillman. Come on, Tim. We're not using Arsenal fans as the barometer here, are we? <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be accepting paying £18.50 for a burger and chips for the rest of our lives. I think that Stephen is making a, 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 a serious point in a humorous fashion. The... I think, yeah, that Arsenal, I don't know, I do wonder if that Arsenal example was a little bit, Arsenal's, the dynamics of the Arsenal crowd are, are a bit odd. I think if you look at like the way United's away fans stuck by Solskjaer right till the very end, almost till the very end, I think that is maybe more indicative of the way that, that clubs away support generally behaves. But yeah, Tim's right, there, are, there will be exceptions, it won't, it, it won't be a hard and fast rule, I am prepared to concede that. 
And it's, it's, like, possi- it's possible in the case of Arsene Wenger that the longevity of his reign led to the feeling that the time had come for him to go, that there wasn't quite the same circling of the wagons because mm. it had been such a long-running deterioration from the level that they were once at that you can sort of understand why in that situation, the very regulars, those that that go home and away, perhaps tired of the situation before everybody else. Mm. Yeah, I think we agree with the principle that Tim sets out, but the practical example being Arsenal rather undermines that principle somewhat. Uh, The final two emails are about SPM 260. This is our attempt to answer the Brick Tamlin-like question, what is style? The first is from Arts Megalia. Gentlemen, over the past several years, I have written to you many times on the subject of tactics versus strategy in soccer. Most of my emails, I fear, have gone directly into the bin. They haven't. I don't want to waste them out. Partly, I suspect this is because many people consider the two terms essentially interchangeable and not worth discussion. But SPM 260 has renewed my interest in this subject. Perhaps style, identity, philosophy are simply other words for strategy. I would acknowledge that certain strategies are unique to the manager as opposed to what we in the US refer to as the front office. But in my mind, there is a clear difference between strategy and tactics. Such a difference exists in warfare and business, and I would argue that it exists in most sports. At the risk of oversimplifying, tactics in soccer are represented by the formation the manager has selected for a particular match. As Rory suggested, different philosophies can be manifested at different times by the identical formation, but an overarching philosophy or strategy will always be front of mind for any manager worthy of the title. I hope I am not overthinking this. It says Art Megalian in Minneapolis, Buffalo in waiting, he adds. And, and Art did indeed send us something on this before. This is the shortest one of a few, just for um, background. An acquaintance once explained to me, says Art, that the reason the United States vanquished Germany in World War II was because the US plays football, the American type, and Germany plays soccer. It was as simple as this. Winning football relies on strategy, whereas soccer just uses tactics. Setting aside the obvious fact that the UK also won the war, does this theory make sense? I don't necessarily expect you to analyse military movements, but is there any validity to his theory? This is why we didn't include it, Art. But still, my understanding, says Art, of soccer tactics is that it is mainly a function of the way a team's 11 sets up. 442-351, whatever. Not great maths, Art. I've never really heard or read what it is that constitutes strategy in the beautiful game. It seems to me this subject might be a good one for a future podcast. Thanks for indulging me. I didn't, Art. Um, P.S. I've always thought the Allies won the war because of a combination of superior resources, overwhelming firepower, splendid good luck, and a monumental stupidity on the part of the Germans, not to mention better kits, which, again, rather undermines the point that he had previously made. That is from Art Megalian, uh, who has sent us many on that subject. I think, I think strategy is closer to philosophy. I agree with the basic principle. I think the difference is that tactics can change depending on game and circumstance. So we, we do oversimplify tactics to, to boil down to a formation, which is not, isn't really, especially now, a particularly kind of illustrative thing that teams do. Your tactics might be to, whether you're playing 4-3-3 three, three or 3-5-2 or, or whatever, your tactics might be to, to push your fullbacks into midfield. It might be to, to go for overloads down the left-hand side. It might be... To, to get the ball to the byline and put it back. It might be to, to launch long crosses. It might be to play through the middle. Your tactics can be lots of different things. I think, I think strategy is a broader overarching term that, that is closer to what we now call philosophy, what we tend to call philosophy. It is the, the belief that you know, Jurgen Klopp's strategy is, is to press the opponents high up the pitch. It's something that regardless of how his team are playing, is a, a kind of calling card of, of the style w- in which they play. So 
yeah, I think the, the broader point is completely right, that tactics and strategy are different. And to me, yeah, to me, the, the delineation is that tactics shift depending on occasion. Strategy is something yeah. that lasts longer and is more more kind of endemic it's, to, it, to, to a team. It's, a, it's, it's the macro versus the micro. Yeah. The micro yeah. is the tactics, yeah, yeah. The, daily, the daily kind of grind, the what should we do for this match, and the, and the strategy might inform that, but the strategy is the overarching, the, the, the macro in that situation. And certainly not mutually exclusive. You can be running no. both at the same time. I, yeah. I should say, Art has sent many emails, none of which have gone in the bin, but some of which haven't made it onto the show. But even even in that situation, even of not getting a 100% record, which nobody does, frankly, uh, Art, you are our Christmas buffalo. Congratulations. Yeah, yes. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Art. In Minneapolis, where I imagine it is more Christmassy than almost anywhere else where people listen to this fine show. I've been to Minneapolis. Have you? Is it, yeah. I imagine, snowing currently? I went, I went fishing for the first time in my life and caught an enormous fish, at which point I decided that fishing's extremely easy and beneath me. Was it because you were fishing in a barrel? <laughs> no, no, it was a proper lake. And not frozen, which I imagine most are in Minneapolis right now. Um, uh, just finally, quickly, Tim Redman has sent us a picture of a T-shirt with a quote on that Rory and I managed to circle around without nailing on SPM 260 during the conversation about style, strategy, tactics, philosophy. It's from Jean-Paul Sartre, would you believe? And it says this, everything in football is complicated by the presence of the opposite team. Uh, who knew that we were philosophers, Rory, you and I? Uh, but we got there eventually, I think. A correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. That, incidentally, was on a T-shirt that you can get on a different website, tpublic.com, which is where you can get our T-shirts, just so that you know the difference. Uh, now, as the Whittington Smith family residence gears up for Christmas, things cannot start feeling festive in earnest until the head of the household has had a furious rant about the BBC Sports Personality of the Year award. Hmm. Thankfully... He did that on our live show in early November this year, got it out of the way. So all was well amongst the tinsel and baubles, and little Ed was allowed to send Santa his Christmas list. It's especially useful as we're recording this before said television extravaganza, and it'll go out afterwards. So a lot of what he'd say now would no doubt look even sillier than normal by the time you hear it. But in the absence of it, a nod towards it nonetheless, as we provide you with our reflective festive double, not spotty, but Sprotty. Yes, it's Set Piece Menu's review of the year, one which will have no sweeping montages and emotional VTs, but it will at least boast one structural element. This week, because it's Christmas, we'll say nice things. Next week, we won't. But before we get to the positive stuff, we are going to do something contemporaneous briefly. We will start our look back at the last 12 months with what has happened uh, pretty much in the last 12 days. It is time for a quick, new, and probably one-time only feature, because it works this week and not afterwards, it's beginning to look a lot like March 2020. Um, so, uh, Rory, this was your idea. So tell us how much of March 2020 is currently infecting your seasonal thoughts. Quite a lot, um, it do, from a, both from a football and a sort of more general life Omicron sense. It, it does feel like, I don't know, it's that same sense of, in fact, I've written it this week, that, that same sense that everything's very precarious. So you see, I think the first ghost game I saw was the Dutch against Turkey. And it's Norway in the World Cup qualifiers, the last round of World Cup qualifiers. And I kind of flicked onto that after watching a bit of whichever the other game was that night that was also interesting. And and you kind of it took you a little while to realise that, that Detroit was or Detroit was em was empty and to remind yourself of what it's like to watch football in an empty stadium. And then you get the Certain German states have have um, have closed mm. closed the stadiums as well. Not all yeah. of them. I think some are still operating on reduced capacities. No, we have had some ghost games in in the Bundesliga already. Yeah, 
Um, obviously, Leipzig, Man City was behind closed yeah. doors. Bayern, Barcelona was behind closed doors in the in the Champions League. Um, and then the start of December, you start getting the cancellations in the Premier League. So f- six games off now. We lost six games. Brighton Spurs was the first. No, in fact, it's more. Three this week, four at the weekend. And by the time this goes out, it could be even more because, yeah, four, four, four more on the eve of this pod recording. Yeah. So if, if it's that frequent and that regular, then you have to think that by the time we get to the um, the, the Boxing Day games, there'll be even more. Yeah, and it's ma- funny because the day was... at the week, match of the day on Saturday is in danger of being like the original match of the day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they might just replay that one, to be fair. And I think, to be honest, this is... This is um, that's probably the thing that I have enjoyed most. And it's that I'm, I'm sure that there will be people out there who quite understandably think it's irresponsible to say this or that it is making light of, of the ongoing pandemic. But I think the thing that I, I, w- I have been most thankful for this year um, is the return of mm-hmm. fans to stadiums, the chance to go to football matches that feel like football matches. Um, the, the most thankful for in a footballing sense. Uh, I should probably highlight that um yeah it's it's only been four or five months i guess since since we've been into games well maybe the, i mean I suppose the euros is, was the start of it was when when the stadiums stadiums were full or full ish again or in the case of the final too full um the and although that was not that will feature i think in in next week's, next week's episode yes, yes. The, next week football with 105 percent capacity crowds <laughs> britain's shame um the that is the that is the thing that kind of has been most uplifting, and I think to an extent that's what's that's what's so disappointing, distressing about the prospect of ghost games coming back or or the league having to take a circuit breaker, which I think doesn't really make any sense um, because of the spread of Omicron. That you kind of you, you you go into stadiums that were full felt like things were getting back to normal, and this the last two weeks have kind of catapulted everybody back to March 2020. And that, that just sense that the whole world is very, very precarious all of a sudden. And Stephen was at Burnley ahead of his almost twice weekly visit to Burnley for match of the day. And um, it was it was called off very late. Uh, I, th- I think uh, it's fair to say, Stephen, that uh, that gave you a sense of perspective on this situation that you might not have had previously. Yes, called off at the point as I was handed my press pass and programme and goodie bag of snacks. So, yeah, that was a bit of a, a reality check. I, I know that sort of Watford fans were getting off the train at Burnley Station as they discovered and immediately had to turn around and, and go home. A lot of people had travelled a long distance before discovering that the match wouldn't be going ahead. Um, it was absolutely the right thing to do under the circumstances because you know, Watford had travelled together up by plane and if they had positive cases within the camp, then then there was no other choice available. Maybe communication... Could have been better, but it, I just get the sense this idea, and Roy's just alluded to it that I'm, I'm, and having having experienced it firsthand the other night, is that whether or not the circuit breaker idea that seems to have sort of gathered so much momentum really is the way to go. Partly because football played such a significant role in that sense of society reopening after the initial lockdown and the the first part of the pandemic that it would strike me as concerning if if football was to suddenly stop and what the implications of that might be for for society at large. And all the time that you can still go to the pub, still go to a nightclub, as we all do regularly, that, that we, you can I'm, step I'm on, in one now, yeah. That you can step onto a crowded train or tube 
with an incredibly high percentage of people who were exempt from wearing a face mask. It's really but distressing, you, isn't it, to see how many people are have these medical problems? Well, exactly. I mean, that is that is the that is the sleeping health concern that society is going to have to face over the course of the next few years. Because a, a pandemic the, of medically diagnosed claustrophobia. Yeah. It's I mean, it's extraordinary. All these vulnerable people get, getting olds together. I mean, that really is going to bring the NHS to its knees. So well, they all seem to have aged quite well, don't you think? Because they must be in the seventies or eighties, but they look like they're twenty-five. Yeah, it is. It's, it is yeah. remarkable. Yeah. 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 Really yeah. At some point, when 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 the when the science when the scientists have got time, we we really could do with an exposure. In, <laughs> they've stopped inventing these viruses. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> that is a joke. We have but, not gone full pandemic. Yes, and, and mo most of the last minute and a half, you all appreciate, was, was delivered in a certain. The, but Steve, do you not think that the, to an extent you're right that football did play a major part in? in kind of helping, I think, and I, th I think to an extent, it's really easy to criticize the Premier League and the various other leagues, and it's really easy to criticize football. The two things that I think are really important is one, football has proved it can play on through the pandemic and it has done so at, to its great credit. Yes, the, the, the way the and clubs... that's the point we've made many times. So there's, yeah. you know, it, it, any criticism about current situation must be taken in the context of the amount of praise deservedly so that professional football has received for what it has done over the course of what the last 18 months yeah so that there's no question that I, I think the problem that i have with the circuit breaker is that thomas frank the brentford manager said that, that he wants to, to cancel one round of fixtures I don't, I don't think that does anything because you'll come back and there'll still be loads of omicron and as mm. you say the as much as players can be isolated and as much as they're not sort of regular members of society like like we are or like 99.9% .9 of people are because then you know they're not getting on trains they're not getting on they're not having to go to work in a fulfillment center they're yeah. not then they, they can isolate themselves more naturally than others you know a lot of them still got kids at school yeah. the vast majority of our kids at school they will have spouses who do not want to just do not see the reason why they alone should kind of self-isolate and shield effectively just because their husband's a footballer. They still have to go to the shops. You know, they still have to kind of, they they, they aren't, they don't exist in their own little worlds. So the fact that there are cases in football is simply a reflection of the fact that there's, there's loads of cases in the community. That's, that's the nature of it. I think that a return to those kind of project restart protocols will, will help hopefully to diminish cases. Yeah. But at, you're quite right that as the country is open, yeah. then football footballers are at more risk than they were when the country is locked down. There's no question about that. And I'm definitely not a kind of lockdown fanatic. But I think the one thing I would say is that football did have a, a part to play in, in showing us, showing the country the way forward. It was a kind of a way to ease us into normalisation again. But it also, football, I think, and I'm convinced of this, it was football that, it certainly wasn't the government, that convinced the people of the seriousness of the situation in yeah. March 2020. It was it was that positive test from Mikel Arteta, the yeah. positive test from Callum Hudson-Odoi, the fact that the Arsenal game got called off that made people think, right, okay, hang on, if, if the football stopped, then yeah. this is serious. And I, I do wonder whether football has a duty to to accept that, that pivotal role in society and say, do you know what, maybe we have to stop to... Yeah. To maybe convince people that this that this that this one's not a joke, that this one's not a kind of well we've been through before, that this is a bit different to to kind of what has come before. That I I don't want football to stop. I think if football stops, it'll be really hard to restart yeah. it. I don't think football has any intention of stopping, partly because of the timing. If they said we're taking the next three weeks off, that would make sense. But they won't do that because of Boxing Day. There is no way they will not play on Boxing Day. 
unless they are unless they're told to by the government unless they're told to shut down by the government there is no way they won't play on boxing day and, and the implications going forward with the with the world cup at well the world cup would have just finished this time next year the the calendar for for next for 2022 is already in disarray compared to what we are used to if you're suddenly trying to squeeze fixtures into vacant windows at some point towards the back end of this season the the, the knock-on impact could be significant well the, 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 the yes and it Oh, that Rory just that, said yes as though that sounded, he was going to follow it up, but no. <laughs> no, that's, it's also sounded really pompous, so I'm going to change it. Yeah, that's right. There is there is a practical issue, and it's a difficult subject to to address because obviously, what's much more much more serious is what's happening far outside football. You know, if you know, Spurs have to play three games in a week, like who cares in the in the grand scheme of things? Are they going to finish ninth or seventh? It's it's not it's not important. I do think, and this sounds really really glib, but I do wonder what would happen if the title came down to kind of that 1989 kind of situation where you have one team that's got games to make up. It's up for and, grabs now, Rory. Yeah, and but what people think about forget about 1989 to an extent, and I will be accused of bias for this, Liverpool hadn't played for several weeks because of Hillsborough. That's why that game happened then and not when it was meant to. Liverpool had a load of games to play because they'd missed however long, however many games it was because of the Hillsborough disaster. If the title came down to Man City having to play three games in a week, and not winning it because they had to play three games in a week and they were knackered. That would there there are questions of sporting integrity there. The flip side is that there are there are there is a little bit of slack in the calendar if they decide. As I say, I don't think there's any chance of them not playing on Boxing Day. But if they decided after that, right, we're going to take two weeks off to a to break the chain of infection within the clubs and b to kind of highlight the seriousness of the situation. You could then cancel the winter break that's written in at the end of January. You'd maybe have to shuffle around the FA Cup a little bit. Um, you could throw in. I think there's one. There, 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 there'll be one spare week. You know, the teams outside out of Europe don't have a problem because there are ways of doing it of, of making making up for it. But it is complicated, and they don't want to do it. Uh, uh, the problem, and yeah, the problem with reshuffling the calendar is there's too many different stakeholders. You'd be yes, back into absolutely. that situation where you were asking people yeah. to make compromises, which they are simply not willing to make. And the other thing, just quickly, Hugh, I know you're trying to move us on, is that the the ecosystem of football and football clubs goes well beyond the footballers, yeah. those employed directly. There's, you know, I saw it at Turf Moor, there's suddenly hospitality, security, people working on the concessions, freelance football commentators who are being turned away. And, and that is another consideration for if you, if you suddenly take a circuit breaker, there are a lot of people that rely on, on football for their income. Yeah. I, I, I was freelance football commentators. I did not mean that seriously, but there are a lot of people who are <laughs> casual employees of football clubs who rely on that income and yeah. pulling the plug on it and, and pulling the plug is a lot easier than powering it back up. Yeah. That has implications for them. Although just we're all clear that that's not how plugs work. <laughs> and just so we're all clear, Stephen was being massively serious when he was talking about the real people <laughs> suffering at the hands of this deadly pandemic being freelance football commentators. Not a thought for freelance football presenters, only the commentators, which is uh, an interesting window into the way that he sees the world. Um, so we have spent, what, the first third of our conversation about being nice about 2021, being slightly scared about the end of 2021 and the beginning of 2022. So we need to start skewing positive, everybody. What would you like to say about 2021, apart from the fans being back, which Rory has already alluded to, that you would like to spread the seasonal feeling of goodwill? 
Well, no, let's start there because I think the fans being back is is a lesson that we have learned this year, a positive lesson. That the vital role that they play mm. in live football, which we kind of already knew, but now we definitely fully appreciate and understand. And that should never be allowed to be forgotten again. And although I do have, you know, a foot in the televised football camp, so I understand a little bit more maybe than the the casual fan about why certain fixes are chosen by TV companies and why they are played at certain times. And I know that can have a huge impact on on travelling fans and and their arrangements or or people who have, you know, booked in advance for games that suddenly are moved. Is we we do absolutely need to consider the role that match going fans play in the product because without them it is devalued significantly yeah i think this will this will bleed into my second thing that i think was uplifting this year that it was the site of parking in copenhagen where, where they, they in the group games in Euro 2020 when Denmark were at home, I think they weren't at full capacity, but it looked an awful lot like they were at full capacity. <laughs> and they, if they weren't at full capacity, what they've done is is close one stand and shove everybody into the other three that you could see on TV. Red was, seats, misleading. Red seats. There Red was seats. something so heartening and stirring about seeing a crowd like that again after... You know, we'd had, I think, at the end of the season, last season, I think, did we have 10,000 in certain Premier League rounds initially? Yeah, it was basically just the last two games yeah. so, so that everybody got a home game. Yeah, and it's interesting yeah. that you didn't didn't select Hungary as, as your example. Mm, that, of... that, was, that was less uplifting. <laughs> yes, there we the, go. Yeah, the site of, like, a full stadium of proper noise, of colour, it was sunny. They're all Danish, so they're all sunburnt. It was, it was, there was something so kind of, yeah, uplifting about, about seeing those those scenes in those in those stadiums where they did have fans, they obviously weren't weren't all full. There was no one in Rome and and what have you. But the stadiums that were full or full-ish were right up until the final were um were really kind of heartening to see. And I think that was that made that tournament because in a lot of ways, I'm not sure Euro 2020 in 2021 was a classic tournament on the on the field. I don't think there was. It was it was engaging. It was entertaining. It was it wasn't bad, but I'm not sure it was a it was a sort of all time great Euros. But because of the the spiritual uplift of seeing some f- stadiums full again, it felt like the it felt like the world was was returning to normal. It felt like what we needed. It was, it's interesting because clearly for all the decades that we had fans, we that was long enough for us to take for granted what fans gave. So we were perhaps not necessarily, as Steve mentioned, we were not necessarily as aware of how important they were. And then fans not being there happened for just long enough that we got used to it so mm-hmm. that when they returned, we were once again, as you say, uplifted and, and pleasantly surprised about how much they did contribute to our but- experience in football. But even as a journalist going to games to work, where you're often going to a game that you, where you have no real, you don't have a horse in the race other than my, my several dozen agendas that I want to, I want straws to settle, people hashtag, I want to criticise, my biases, agendas. exactly. Um, you kind of, you can't, you never, you never get over that buzz of going to a big game, or not even a big game, just a game. You never ever lose that sense of excitement of being around ten, fifteen, twenty, thirty thousand people. Mm-hmm. And walk into a stadium and seeing the colour and seeing that even if it's a you know even if it's like a 
at like a Tuesday night and it's a game you're not really that bothered about going to and you're quite tired and you you know it's like a dead rubber in the Champions League there is something exciting about it even when you've been to hundreds and hundreds of football matches whether you're a fan whatever you're doing there I think that that buzz remains in I, I don't think in the year that we had fans we had the ghost games I don't think anyone forgot that and having that return was really was really special mm. that would be that would be the highlight, I think, up until the point where that fella put the flare in his in his ass. <laughs> that was it. pretty much the middle of the year, and from that moment on, <laughs> but yeah, it kind of built to that, and then it crescendoed with the flare in the ass. It's and a bit like a, fi- a firework that fizzled out. Yeah, it just it, it oh, all everything tumbled down. The metaphor down. is too strong to ignore. But the other thing from the Euros is Italy. Italy was a brilliant story. Italy was a really, really kind of. Yeah, joyful story. A team that wasn't necessarily favoured to win, although they weren't they weren't a dark horse as they're Italy, but wasn't necessarily favoured to win. A team that kind of grew into the tournament, that got that sense of momentum behind them, that that had a, a country that had suffered a lot in the pandemic, that had already won Eurovision to make up for all of that, and um, to, for for them to win, for that sort of team to win, rather than a you know an England or a or a England or France particularly which would have felt a bit more England I mean I, I think Patrick Schick that said the other day that he felt in the Euros that everything was was set up for England to win it I th- looking that's there's an element of hindsight there I think but you know you'd if the French had kind of ground their way to victory I'm not sure that would have been a particularly stirring end to the tournament but for the, for the Italians to do it with that kind of mix of players with you know Benucci and Chiellini who are really experienced and then then these kind of young relatively unheralded players at the other end, it, that was just a real that that felt like a feel good story as well. I think they were, they were, an, a, yeah. Again, to to repeat myself um, for the millionth time, an an uplifting champion. Yeah, and I, I know we did a full podcast pretty much on this recently, but it, it 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 ties in with the the fact that maybe international football isn't quite the drudgery that that regular match going or hardcore supporters of the club game try to lead you to believe that it is that that was a demonstration of that that Italy were able to go on that run build up ahead of steam win the tournament and they've dropped away a little bit since you know we see that kind of stuff in club football all the time and that the international football gave us excitement gave us drama gave us jeopardy continues to do so we saw it run through the world cup qualifiers and you know nations league you know throwing up England Germany England Italy and yippee England hungry again but you know that there it's possible now for narratives to run through international football and and that I think that was my sort of big takeaway from from the Euro and from the World Cup qualifiers that followed followed it is that you know actually international football it's pretty good well I was, I was trying to work out who Italy were I had this conversation with someone else, someone, someone else the other day. Italy is basically... a country on Mediterranean. Yeah. Like, like for a the boot. boot. Who are these guys? <laughs> you know, they're trying to lead wasn't a Tottenham, aren't they? It's, they're, not, they're not a sort of outright favourite. You know, Man City would be France or whatever. Um, they're not an outright favourite. This but is they a are fun a, game. <laughs> a contender. And I think that what it shows is that international football does have that degree of kind of balance where a team like that, that is flawed, but finds a way to sort of counterbalance its, its flaws, can can succeed and it feels like that has been lost a little bit in the club game where we where we kind of you know you look at maybe with the exception of Italy where there's the sort of four teams that are all fairly tightly packed together you know we know who's going to win the lead in Germany we know who's going to win the lead in Spain we know who's going to win the lead in France we can narrow it down to 
to two or let's say three teams in the Premier League. Whereas in the Euro, it looked like there were times when you looked at it and thought, well, England looked good or France looked good or or Italy, obviously. The Dutch, there was a point in, in the Euro where the Dutch looked like they, they might be fancied. The Spanish. Denmark, what, you know, there was a Denmark, huge swell yeah. of, you know, encouragement behind them. And it, and that obviously that, the incident with, with Ericsson, which obviously was, was distressing in, in the extreme in one sense, but was also very kind of touching in another to the reaction of the players. Um, that, the, yeah, there was a sense that there was a genuine sense at one point that it might all be that the story might be written that Denmark might win it. So you had kind of five, six teams out of 24 who could win this tournament or look like they might win this tournament relatively far in. And that is, that is not something you really get in club football anymore. And I think that that may well be a trend that we see continue where international football is where we get that sense of of non-scripted drama effectively it's, it's, it's knockout football isn't it it's, it's yeah. the old the old adage that you've got much more chance of of losing if you're the favorite over 90 minutes in a knockout match than you than you do over the course of 38 games or, or however many games you play in the league so what what about club football does anybody Give us give us some sort of positive on club football, or are we also weathered by those particularly footballing wins that uh, we don't see don't see any joy in that anymore. I mean, there's a few. This this will upset people. There's a few club stories that were good over the course of the year. So Lille winning the title in France was yep. a good story. Leicester winning the FA Cup. Leicester winning the FA Cup was a fantastic story. Inter Milan winning Serie A, breaking breaking Juve stranglehold. That was a good yep. story. Um, other than the Atletico Madrid, I suppose you have to throw in winning the title in Spain. Um, that, uh, that also still counts as a shot, just about. I, I know there's geopolitical considerations. Sheriff in getting into the Champions League and winning at the Bernabeu. I know it's yeah, it's slightly more complicated. It's not quite the rags to riches story as Rory so brilliantly wrote about it. But it 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 it, it did further demonstrate that the Champions League isn't a closed shop and that it's still possible to have shocks. But even within the context of Sheriff Sheriff's complex identity, you can, regardless of that, and this is input, this applies to Man City and to Newcastle as well and to PSG, that, yeah, Sheriff, Sheriff I, I, I'm pretty adamant, are not an admirable club. They're not a fairy tale at all. But you can be delighted for Sebastian Till, the Luxembourg midfielder yeah. who, who scored that wonderful goal in the Bernabeu whoever he's playing for that it it is hard not to be thrilled by that sort of moment that is that is the kind of moment that that football wish i'd said till provides the thrill oh there you go commentary instead peter drury was so kind about the job that you did and yet he 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 probably was thinking that was three months three months later i discovered i got it wrong thanks rory (laughs) The the um yeah well you know just maybe come to me next for for puns on players' <laughs> quick, names quick the, quick quick text me now text me now <laughs> the um yeah that those sorts of in, those sorts of moments are 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 precious regardless regard ultimately and this isn't a particularly and I'm sure I, I won't hold myself to this standard when it comes to like Newcastle scoring the goal that win the Premier League and I start banning on about Saudi human rights but the those sorts of moments are are hard not to to have your heart swell when when a player who I think until relatively recently wasn't professional goes to the Bernabeu and scores a winning goal for this yeah. team that no one's heard of that, that yeah that is that is inherently magical it's interesting because uh, I uh, spent uh, either prior to your piece or uh, responding to your piece uh, Rory uh, googling a good amount about Transnistria. Uh, so I am grateful for the last 12 months, providing me an opportunity to become more geopolitically aware um, of very, very Eastern Europe states that aren't recognised by the state within which 
it currently sits. How about that for something that I've learned over the course of uh, the last 12 months? The, and, and from a club, you know, the club game aspect, Brentford has been a great story. Yeah. Brentford's, you know, we, I suppose we anticipated it was coming. They've been building towards it, but to, to see them promoted to the Premier League and, and, and thus far up until this point, making a fairly decent fist of it as well, sticking, their, sticking to their principles, playing entertaining football, winning some, you know, losing some, that, that's been, that, that, that sends the message, doesn't it, down through the pyramid that it, it's still possible. And, and that, I guess, it is a blessing and a curse because it, it provides clubs with the belief and the inspiration that they can reach the Premier League, but there are those who, in endeavouring to do so, will overreach. But it, it appears that Brentford has been a, a relatively good news story in that regard. It is a good news story, particularly because the, the, yeah, the risk is that Brentford being in the Premier League encourages clubs to take risks. And we've seen, as you know, a couple of days before we, we recorded this, this story about the NFT people who want to buy Bradford oh, City, God. which is deeply depressing. And are, you, are you about to explain to us what non-fungal tokens are? They are an expression fungible, of... Fungible, non, non-fungible. Non-fungible. See, there you go. I don't even know what they're called. <laughs> they are an expression NFTs. of genera- Generation Z's nihilism. Although they also... Yeah. The, the, the complication of it is that... That at root, it also kind of exposes that all money is is meaningless, which is interesting. But basically, it's 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 a Ponzi scheme mm-hmm. where some it's an attempt to to it's dressed up as an attempt to rebalance the global economy uh, in a much fairer way. But in reality, it's the same as all economies in the sense that the idea is that the people who are behind it will get rich, and everybody else uh, they don't really care about. That's basically what NFTs are. But anyway, no the the lesson of Brentford. The problem the problem is that football always learns the wrong lesson. So. Yes, the lesson football will take from Brentford is we should spend loads of money and get to the Premier League. But what people should look at Brentford and learn is if we do things really smartly, if we have a defined strategy... uh, Invest in the right way. Invest in the right way. You'll have to spend money, but you'll have to spend it sensibly. We we might be able to get our reward of going all the way to the Premier League. And Brentford are, are... are whatever the opposite of a cautionary tale are. They're, they're, they should be an inspiration. Unfortunately, they will be an inspiration in the wrong way. Does not everyone as smart as Matthew Benham and, and Rasmus Anderson? But that they are, they should be an example to clubs throughout the football league to say that if you do things really cleverly, then you can make it. You do not need to spend the most money to do it. Um, sadly, I'm not quite sure that's how it will manifest. But yeah, there is Brentford def- definitely in their, their, their first game at home to Arsenal, that the opening Premier League game of the season, fans back, new stadium, to an extent, um, a stadium that had not previously had fans in it, um, or certainly hadn't been full. That was a really, that was the perfect way to, to kickstart the season, to see. And I mean, there was a load of criticism of Arsenal afterwards. And we should also say that two of the, you know, that it's possible to take great joy in, in negative things too. And and I think most fans would probably have found Man United this season quite funny. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I, to nothing be honest, I think if you're a Man United fan, you should probably understand why most fans will have found their travails this season quite funny. Uh, in the same way as if Liverpool or, or Chelsea collapsed, it would be quite funny. It was funny when Chelsea collapsed under Mourinho. That was really funny. And people enjoyed it. And that it's great content. And that's not a there's no source of shame in that. Um You'll just but, give them a siege mentality, Rory, and then you'll everyone's, get frustrated everyone's, with the everyone's got a siege mentality <laughs> now. The but yeah, I think there was a lot of criticism of Arsenal after that. But to be honest, they walked into a trap. 
that that wasn't ending any other way. No, I, I mean, apart from maybe City and Liverpool and Chelsea, no team was going to go to Brentford that night and get anything other than beat it. It felt, felt like Cameroon against Argentina in the first uh, first uh, game of yeah. the nineteen ninety World Cup. There was with rather, such joy in it. With rather fewer brutal fouls. Yes. We, we we should remember Benjamin Massing. The um nobody that, was being hacked down thigh level. <laughs> that is the best red card ever. <laughs> Was, yes. that, was that on Kinesia? me wrong. Was that on Kinesia? Can you remember? Kinesia, yeah. Kinesia. Kinesia. Rode the first challenge, rode the second, completely cleaned out by the third. Exocet missile, bang, at hip level. <laughs> the Argentinians still have their moment from that tournament. They still have their song yeah. about about Kani and, and Diego. And yeah, the, everyone wins in that tournament. Everyone wins. Just the team that people... Funny enough, that, that's, that's a good subject. The um, I reckon people, more people remember Cameroon from that tournament than the team that won it. Do, you know, everybody has their moment where they they sort of fell in love with football, or that they can they can trace their fascination with the game back to. I think that red card is mine. Well, and as and an impression, you've banged on before about how devastated you. Were I know, I know, but in terms of locking me in, that that moment, that the sheer drama of that moment. Well, yes, as an in, impressionable twelve-year-old, exactly English. Young English football fans who had been infuriated by Hand of God yeah. and then probably hadn't really experienced that much football before 1990, then they were seeing the Maradona-led Argentina being beaten by a team who nobody thought was going to beat them and also rather humorously hacking them to pieces. And Argentina got their way back because they managed to hack uh, Germany to pieces, West Germany as they were then, uh, in the pieces of the final because they got, got two red cards, didn't they? So you yeah, know, They didn't and, win. With yes, that's true. But Jurgen Klinsmann's dive, you know, what what a what a glorious expression of football that was. And we're, it's interesting we're that in our attempt one years out in our our appreciation of something that happened in nineteen ninety. It's interesting that in our attempt to be really positive about twenty 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 one, we've ended up talking about the, how much we enjoyed the nineteen ninety World Cup. Exactly. Are there, and that is after this point from Rory is where we will end. Are there I mean are there individual players who have stood out this year. I would, again, at the risk of being accused of bias, I, I would say that Mo Salah's form since the start of the season is probably worth a mention, um, although obviously it won't be popular with people who don't like Liverpool. But I think it, he he now has the air of one of those players that it is a there is a degree of privilege in watching him play now at the moment. Um, and he's been doing it for so long that I think that that warrants a mention. Little mention for Bernardo Silva, I think, who's been who's been in in brilliant form and that there's there's something nice about that given that he could have easily have left City in the summer certainly I know Milan will want Milan tried to sign him but couldn't match his wages and you know there's every reason to believe Bernardo wouldn't have been here had Milan had a little bit more money um but he's he's lit up the lead as well so but beyond that in terms of I think less I, obvious examples uh, can I throw a less glamorous can I throw Declan yeah. Rice in there because I think yeah. West Ham fans knew what Declan Rice was capable of and I remember quite a few years ago chatting to some West Ham fans on a train who said, you know, that he is, you know, the best player they've seen since Bobby Moore. But now he's doing it consistently. So I think everybody's get, getting to appreciate that. So I think he's, he's taken what West Ham fans knew instinctively he was capable of and is delivering it week after week. Yeah, on, the, on that theme, just and, and this will appear myopic, given that we've just mentioned another youngish England player, what, and, and also refers back to the young Hugh and probably Steve as well back in 1990, that there is a sense that when you see an English player 
do things which you don't either expect an English player to do or he does it consistently enough for you to think, goodness me, it's almost like he's not English because we are weathered mm. by those footballing wins. Watching the likes of, of Phil Foden and Jude Bellingham do, do things Bellingham. that belies their age, but, but also just makes you think, oh, hang on, what? Did he mean to do that? Oh, yes, he meant to do that because he does it again in five minutes' time. And just the, their ability on the ball and all, all those kind of cliches that people trot out. It, it, it reminds me not of Gaza in terms of the way that they play, but it reminds me of Gaza in the way that I felt when I saw him doing those things. And uh, that, that for me is a pleasure, albeit one that will no doubt be crushed by some sort of, some sort of heartbreaking loss or devastation at some point in their career, career futures, future Jude, careers. Jude Bellingham doing post-match interviews. Yeah. I think Bellingham's a great shout as a player who's really kind of brought joy this year, and I'd, I'd throw in Erling Haaland as well yeah. as a just just to see the, the continuing ridiculousness of his goal scoring prowess. Um, I think they're they're both, but Declan Rice is a great shout that there is something really there's something really nice just because we we see so many like proper wonder kids who who sort of hit the ground at seventeen eighteen, and the other player I throw in who I think has has made has made me smile this year is Pedri. Um, and to an, to an extent, Gavi, since he came started coming through at Barcelona as well, that I think it is deeply ironic that Barca have are a billion euros in debt and are screwed as a club, and yet they now probably have the three best teenagers in world football, apart from maybe Bellingham, in Pedri, Gavi, and Ansu Fati. The that that is a team and a half for the, you know five years time. Um, not, but the not, other two, not, not mathematically, but but yeah, no. Um, the <laughs> unless I have to sell them to balance the books, they might have to sell them to balance the books. The and the other two moments that I would throw in to make me look clever. Number what both happened in Lisbon. One Serbia knocking the Portuguese out, or not knocking the Portuguese out, but denying the Portuguese access to the uh, the great celebration of human rights that is the, the Qatar World Cup. Uh, with that last-minute goal from the fella who's not good enough for the Premier League, but is brilliant in the Championship, Mitrovic. Mit, that's it, Mitrovic. And the other, actually, and this is this is full-on hipster. Sporting Lisbon winning their first league title in 19 years. Well, that if, you're was, hip, if you're really hipster, not you wouldn't call hipster. them Sporting Lisbon. No, no, I'm not. Sports include I, the Portugal. I'm not. I'm not. But I don't buy. I don't. I. I have. I am on record as saying that I do not subscribe to that theory. They are called Sporting Lisbon in English, in the same way as no one in Bayern Munich complains that we don't. We call them Bayern Munich. Then you don't get Germans saying, "Oh, it's Bayern München." We know it's it's Sporting Club de Portugal, but we all call them Sporting Lisbon. Just be happy that we call them Sporting Lisbon <laughs> and not something we're wrong. Talking about you, were yeah. just be happy that we're talking about. But it's it's that that was their first league title in 19 years. Pote, the player who who led them to it, had one of those nuts seasons. They obviously sold Bruno Fernandes um, the the year before. Um, and Ruben Amarim, their coach, is a kind of is is a star in the making. And I think those stories are lovely. It's always nice to see a team kind of break their hoodoo. The longest substantial wait for a title now in European top flight football is either Marseille or Arsenal. Uh, now, we'll do London it. Arsenal. London, Arsenal, that's London, London, Arsenal, London. Uh, now, as you know, Chinch isn't here, but we still have a raconteur in our midst because now it's time for Never Mind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is where Stephen Wyeth tells us a tale of his broadcasting days without even the suggestion of any adult behaviour or libel-worthy details included within. So we return to Turf Moor, which we were discussing a little earlier, and the scheduled game between Burnley and Watford. I mentioned that I was just collecting my press pass and my programme and my, my snack bag as the game, we discovered the game had been called off. The thing is, is there'd been a rumour going around the ground for about five or ten minutes prior to that, 
that started when just a regular punter ran past us whilst we were in the in the queue at the press door to sort of question why we were still stood there because he said the, the game's off <laughs> i'm fairly no offense mate but i think we'd have heard about that before you would have done but anyway we thought we'd start asking around and there were some some girls who worked in hospitality who were also queuing up at the same door as us and they turned around and said yeah we've heard that rumor too so we put a call into our stadium point of contact who really should be in quite at the top of the chain in terms of discovering this information and they had only heard it as a rumor as well and eventually a lad who looked like he could be no more than 12 but was dressed to work in one of the hospitality lounges turned around and said quite adamantly the game is off my boss has told me and we said all right son who's your boss hoping that he would name the chief executive or say alan pace or his dad was sean deitch but he said no he works in maintenance. So the guy who works in maintenance at Turf Moor knew that Burnley versus Watford was off long before any members of the media did. And that was how we discovered that our journey to that part of uh, East Lancashire had been a complete and utter waste of time. So Stephen went with his floor manager to have an Indian meal. Um, we did. An excellent your, Indian meal. And you wouldn't have done otherwise. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen and Rory and to you all for listening. And Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Season's greetings. That covers everybody, I think, even viewers of Fox News. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Are you all having, all having big family Christmases? Well, that's the, that's the schedule, space. The which, scheduled which, plan. Which three households do you think you'll be spending time with? <laughs> well, that's the problem when you've got three brothers. Ooh. Oh, no. Which one are we cutting out? <laughs> Who gets relegated? Who do you like the least? Well, no, actually, because then, but then there's my mum and dad as well. So that's oh, God, five yeah. households. Well, and what Honestly, about on Katie's side? Oh, yeah. Oh, never mind them. <laughs> no, all right. So they're straight out. Okay. Yeah, none of them have made international headlines in the London Marathon. So uh... Exactly. We well, don't have Dave, haven't you? Celebrity. Celebrity dinner Dave. with Dave. Celebrity lives, dinner lives with Dave. The, lives the most local, though. So, you know, what's the point? Catch up at another time.